You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is the Martha Zoller Show. It's so funny because Nancy Pelosi feels like she's got to come out and say that now when the fact of the matter is, uh, oh, let me count the ways that Congress should be doing their job that they're not. Whether it's, I mean, I don't. I don't think you should do debt forgiveness, quite frankly, because if you sign a contract, say you're going to pay something back, you ought to pay it back. But if the federal government, here's the dirty little lie. If the federal government really believed there was a role for helping people go to college, then why are they charging them six and three quarters percent? And they've been doing that for the last 15 years when interest rates were a lot lower than they are now. If you really believed it's the role of the federal government, you wouldn't be encumbering students with the kind of interest rates that you are. It's a way to make money, and it's pretty sad. And I don't know if you saw what the revenues of the federal government was last year, Steve Moore. It was $4.4 trillion was the revenues, and we couldn't balance a budget when we're taking in $4.4 trillion? I mean, you're exactly right, my friend. And, you know, we have record. That, By the way, that's an all-time record. Yes. That revenue, $4.4 trillion. All-time record. And yet, so what that's telling us, and this is such an important point, is Washington does not have a revenue problem. <laughs> we, we have plenty of revenue, folks. We have an overspending problem, and we're spending a trillion and a half dollars more than we're taking in. And we're doing it year after year after year after year after year. Uh, and so we need to change. I gave a talk to the, you know, is it, I think it is now official Republicans, um, have the house. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. So <laughs> now by a very slim margin, obviously, but it looks like it's going to be by about three or four votes. But the point is Nancy Pelosi is no longer speaker, uh, ding dong, the witch is dead. And it means that Republicans now can, they can't blame the Democrats. If there's too much spending, the, the, the spending starts in the house. You know that from yes. your basic civics constitution. So I gave a talk to the Republicans uh, in the House yesterday because they're back in Washington. I said, um, you have got your number one job is to guard the purse and make sure that this massive, outrageous debt spending stops. They've got to cut a, at least a trillion dollars out of the budget uh, immediately. And we'll see whether they have the. Uh, you know, and have the backbone and the spinal fluid to do that. And, you know, but, I know everybody's going after Rick Scott, but if you remember, nobody really expected us to win the ha- win the Senate. And then we got all exuberant because the polling was looking good and we didn't end up winning the Senate. And Rick Scott only told the truth. He told the truth that if we don't start looking at Medicare and Social Security, it's not going to be there. That's just telling the truth. That's not throwing grandma off the cliff. That's trying to be sure that by the before you get to the edge of the cliff, you've taken a look at it and tried to fix it. Well, here's the thing. You don't you don't have to cut the spending for these programs. What, for example, Medicare and Social Security and unemployment benefits and things like that, Medicaid. That what you have to do, and this is urgent, and this is this is just good, um, you know, business practice. Is we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to start investigating the massive hundreds of billions of dollars of fraud and theft from these programs. I mean, we've talked about this week after week on your show, Martha, about 150 billion, not 150 million. $150 billion 
was either stolen or sent um, erroneously to people who didn't deserve the benefits. I mean, and half those people don't even live in the United States, for goodness sakes. They're in Russia. They're in Mexico. They're in other countries. So let's start by getting rid of the fraud, for goodness sakes. I mean, you've got these programs. Some of them have 10 to 20 percent fraud rates, Martha. And the Democrats, by the way, refused to ever do anything about it. When, when we were saying, let's do some investigations, they said, no, you know, we're not going to investigate that. So that has to be another top priority for the GOP uh, as they take over the House. And look, I, I, I disagree with you a little bit. I mean, there's no, it is inexcusable that the Republicans do not have control of the Senate right now. We should have picked up at least three or four seats, given what the Democrats have done to our country. This race, the Herschel Walker runoff, which I feel confident Herschel will win, this is really important. It's not going to determine who has control of the Senate, but it means that now they have a slim one-seat majority, and that really handcuffs uh, Chuck, Chucky Schumer from doing more of the damage that he's done to this country. Yeah, it really does. And uh, look, I, you know, we've got a big mess when we've got a president that doesn't know the difference between debt and deficit. I mean, that's like yeah. government one hundred one. We've got all kinds of other issues, and then we got to get people out to vote. And the biggest challenge we're going to have is that now that the Senate's not in play, people think that it's not that important to get out and vote. But folks, you got to get out and vote because. In the next cycle, and I know you you throw things at me when I talk about the next cycle because you're mad about the one we're in. But the next cycle, a lot more Democrats are up for re-election. It's going to be a lot harder for them to defend their position. And we have a big chance of taking over and getting into 54, 55 range. Yeah. And uh, look, I I have to say this. Um, You know, I have a lot of friends in Georgia. As you know, Martha, and, yes. and I, they, they say, well, you know, Herschel Walker is not a great candidate. You know what? He's not a great candidate. I, I admit it. I, I like Herschel. I bet him. I think he's a, a good man. Is, 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 but here's the point. Raphael Warnock voted for $4 trillion in debt. Four trillion dollars. He is impoverishing and bankrupting our country. Well, the four hundred and thirty thousand, the four hundred thirty thousand Republicans that stayed home uh, in January of twenty twenty one cost yeah. us about four trillion dollars. That's right. And yeah. so Raphael Warnock is a horrific United States senator. What he has done, and I don't know anything about. It. I don't know him personally. He might be a good person. I don't know. I don't know anything about him. I do know this. Every single vote he has taken has been for the Biden agenda that is destroying our country. And so I, I really feel strongly that this is really about Raphael Warnock. Folks, do you want to send back to Washington a guy who is in the hip pocket of the Biden Democrats that are doing this damage to our country? Well, you know, if you do, then you can't complain about things going wrong in Washington. No, absolutely not. So what what. uh how did they receive you at the caucus? I mean, I, you know, well, I hear this every time, obviously. Steve, that yeah. they're going to get back on track fiscally. To me, job one is doing the budget on time, doing what Congress yeah. is supposed to do. I'm fine yeah. with investigations. I'm fine with all this other stuff. But if you're not really doing the work of the Congress, then you're no different than any other Republican majority that's taken over. Well, that's right. And so... You know, we. I think they get it. I think they know that they're going to have to cut cut this spending, and it's going to be tough. I mean, it's going to be hand to hand combat with with Chucky Schumer and with uh, with Joe Biden. They have no interest in cutting spending. They they're talking about more and more and more spending. I mean, as we speak right now, here our country is in economic crisis, and Joe Biden is over there negotiating with the Chinese 
about climate change. I mean, how crazy is this? And by the way, the Chinese don't care about climate change. They have pollution levels four times higher than ours are. They're building these coal plants that are replacing American coal plants, and they're laughing at us. So uh, how is that, you know, solving our economic problems to be, you know, to go over there with China? He should be talking about China. Stop, stop stealing our technology, right? Balance the budget, be energy independent, stay focused, be conservative. The country will be fine. Stay Steve Moore, thanks for being with us today. Lots more to come right here. We'll be back. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Amani Wells Anyoha is with us. I hope I said that right, Amani. How are you? I'm good. How about you, I'm doing great. And Amani is a progressive analyst and a political strategist. Uh, she's worked in and built candidate campaigns and so we've kind of done that parallelly i am on the conservative side i've done that sort of thing uh for a number of candidates and i thought it'd be interesting to talk to you because one i think it's funny that nancy pelosi says they're like the lounge act i mean i think a lot of important work happens in congress and in the senate and actually they ought to do more of what they're supposed to do, which is like pass a budget on time, uh, <laughs> you know, have the priorities of the country clearly. And, you know, I, I did an interview years ago with uh, Reverend John Lewis, I mean, uh, Representative John Lewis. And, you know, mm. I said to him, I said, you know, I know that you and I don't agree a lot on policy, but uh, I think if I made a list of 20 things that... Uh, we should cut in the budget, and you made a list of 20 things, we could probably find three we agreed on. (laughs) We could Mm -hmm. maybe get some work done. And he agreed with me. He said, while I'm a partisan, you've got a point there. So I -hmm. think what these election results kind of showed us is that people want folks that are going to work together. They Mm -hmm. kind of rejected the fringes on both sides of of the agenda. And uh, we've got a little more, I don't want to use the word moderate because it gets overused, but a little more workable mm-hmm. Congress than we've had in the last two or three cycles. Definitely. Yeah, I think this election cycle went um, a different way than a lot of people initially thought. But I think overall, um, your your analysis is correct. I think that in these next two years, it's really crucial that we can get some legislation passed, some really monumental legislation or at least legislation that can move us forward even if it's in tiny increments but i do believe that we haven't done enough in congress or the senate in the past couple of years so i'm hoping that because of these election results and because um of just both sides of the aisle wanting to do something then we can get something accomplished but we'll see yeah, and for me, and again, this may be because I'm a conservative, but for me, getting that budget back on regular order where we're not just mm-hmm. doing continuing resolutions that look like Christmas trees all the time with something for mm-hmm. everybody in them, I think yeah. is, for me, is job one. If I had control, that's what I would be pushing for. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important that the Congress has just like a big come to Jesus meeting. I don't know if they're going to do that, but I would like for them to come together and put, like you said, just a couple of ideas forward because I think a lot of the times we all get caught up in the weeds of wanting to do giant things or wanting to pass um, things that are super unpopular or super difficult to pass, but that doesn't mean that we should just be at a standstill and not get anything done. So I'm hoping that we can agree on just a couple of things that we can move forward um, and have a better chance of negotiating on those things and getting something done. 
You know, I always tell the joke that it's a bad day for the American people when you call a bill comprehensive anything because yeah. <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff in it that don't that mm-hmm. doesn't matter to the issue a hundred percent a lot of stuff in these bills is a lot of fluff there's a lot of secret things that go in there um and i feel like it's meant to be overcomplicated just so that there is an excuse of why things don't get passed so i'm hoping that we can weed out some of the fat and just decide and identify what is it that we want to do. Are we focusing on health care? Are we focusing on um, the housing crisis? Like, what is it going to be that we want to do in the next couple of years? Are we going to do more for the infrastructure? Are we going to um, do some things down here in Texas, like maybe with the big freeze? Like, what is the goal here? And let's figure that out and get some, some type of resolutions going. You know, Amani, what's really interesting is you're saying a lot of things that the big-name Democrats were, I mean, big-name Republicans were saying on my show leading up to the election that we need to take these bills, we need to do them in smaller pieces, we need to vote on them so that people know what their congressmen or senators stand on a particular issue and then send it to the president and let him either veto it or sign it. But it needs to be in smaller pieces where people understand it. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. It's it's just true. Uh, we've seen the big, massive, like, for instance, the infrastructure bill. It's a huge bill, but there's so much in it that I don't even think everyday Americans understand what happened with the bill. Or why. Why it's in there. Or why. Why is it in yeah. an infrastructure or, bill? Exactly. And I'm team um, tangible is what I like to call it. So I would like to give voters something that they can know was a fair exchange of their vote. So I voted for this person. So now we have voting rights protections. I voted for this person and now um, wages are better in my community. Like, what is it that we are tangibly giving voters to even keep them engaged in this process? You know, you mentioned the big freeze in Texas, which I think is a really Mm -hmm. interesting thing to talk about because uh, they they recently had kind of the reverse of that in California because it was in the summertime where where mm-hmm. we got too hot and mm-hmm. in both cases Texas a very red state and in mm-hmm. California a very blue state they made the same mistake that in the zeal to be in renewables which i think it should be the goal okay that mm-hmm. should be the goal but we're not yeah. there yet. And in the mm-hmm. zeal of being in renewables, what they forgot is, is that when you have extreme weather, that mm-hmm. you need a backup. And sometimes that backup is fossil fuels. And that's, you know, I mean, it's kind of like I went to the University of Georgia. I loved the University of Georgia. They are pretty mm-hmm. much totally renewables, except they have this mm-hmm. one little coal-fired plant that if, if mm-hmm. on the rare occasion it's five degrees in Georgia that they won't have to go without heat at the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense. I think the thing that, especially in Texas, I'm in Texas, I'm from Dallas, born and raised. Um, That explains a lot, actually. That's why you're so reasonable. Okay. (laughs) So I think what we need is to weatherize our our um, equipment here. That's the reason that the big freeze had um, the disastrous results that it had is that we just weren't prepared infrastructurally to handle it. Um, And I think that, like how we're talking about the infrastructure bill and all the things like that, if we put more stuff in those bills like that, that people can walk away from feeling protected or safe because these we're living in a different time. These climate things are going to occur. So it's best to prepare um, our citizens for those type of things so that they're not 
you know, being frozen out. Adapt. You're talking about adapting, you know, which is what humans are really good at. We're good at adapting. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. Okay. So in 1966, I think the two worst years in American history were 1913 and 1966. Constitutionally, there were other bad years, but constitutionally, because we went to direct election of senators, which sounds good on paper, but it's led to the huge amounts of money that we now spend in politics. Mm -hmm. And then the Mm -hmm. second thing is uh, when President Johnson, another Texan, who mixed all the Medicare and Social Security money with the general fund. It's not true that there was ever a lockbox, but they did used to keep the money separate. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. 1966 was the first year that the baby boomers started entering the workforce. So the money was just flowing in, you know, mm-hmm. because there was this mm-hmm. huge number of 21 year olds and then like 30 years of them behind coming in just just throwing money into Medicare and Social Security. So they thought, oh, well, we can spend mm-hmm. it and we'll pay it back later. Well, mm. now we're in a situation where you sound like a young person. You're probably paying for your grandmother's Social Security because we mm. don't have a lockbox. And mm-hmm. what Rick Scott said was, whether you agree with him or not, is we need to start looking at this on a regular basis and being sure that the formulas we have are working. He got called everything but a child of God because of that. And and they had all the wheelchairs on the edge of the cliff getting ready to throw grandma off. Um, is there any way that a progressive could look mm-hmm. at that issue and say, you know what, we do need to look at it and here's how we need to do it? Yeah, I think expansion is the main thing. Um, I think that people... Because put it this way, no one likes to see that money come out of their check every month. Yeah. Um, if they can't see that when the time comes, they'll be able to use it. Yes. I think that's the thing that scared people the most is like, listen, I'm a hardworking person. I'm paying my taxes. I'm paying my Medicare and Medicaid. When I'm old and I need somebody to take care of me, I hope that the government will return that investment just like I did to them. Um, so I just think putting something together to make sure that people have access to that money uh, when the time comes and abundantly. Because prices are rising in this country. As we all know, inflation is crazy. The cost of living has quadrupled. And the um, income and the amounts that people are being paid have not matched that. So it's just about setting people up for success and just hoping that the government can, you know, return the favor when that time comes. I think that's what makes people the most nervous because they don't want to feel like this money that they've been investing. Because a lot of people have been paying, like me, I got my first job when I was 15. I've been paying Medicare. Yeah, hey, Medicare I'm I 63. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm 63. I've been paying into Medicare and Social Security since I was 16 years old. So, exactly. you know, I I get it. I put a lot of money in there. Listen, this has been yeah. a great conversation. One thing I would love for you to watch if you haven't watched it yet is that in mm-hmm. 2011 uh, Marco Rubio gave a speech at the Reagan Library about how to fix Medicare and Social Security but it didn't get the headlines because that same day Nancy Reagan fell and so what ended up in the headlines mm-hmm. was that he caught Na- Nancy Reagan as she fell not the speech he made which I think was probably one of the most thoughtful speeches about reforming Social Security and Medicare that I've ever seen um mm-hmm. It, take a look at it if you get a chance. But I'd love to have you back on because I think that yeah. um, these kinds of discussions between very conservative people and progressive people need to happen. I mean, Agreed. we need to have these discussions. We need to come to the table. We need to talk about ideas. And you and I might not agree on, 
you know, 10% of how to fix it. But if we can fix that 10%, it might be good. I agree with you a million percent. I always feel a centimeter, an inch, or a foot forward is better than a standstill for the next 50 years. And you know what? You Democrats are so good at that because you don't give up. You know, we mm-hmm. we like to eat our young and move on to the next issue. <laughs> you guys worked on health care reform for like 100 years, okay? And then you finally got it. <laughs> so you guys never give up. Anyway, um, Amani Wells on Yoiho, on Yoiha, on Yoiha. I'll get it right by the next time, I promise. And I appreciate you very much. Thank you for being on. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. Now, see what happens? Don't mess with Texas. Even in Texas, they produce easy to get along with progressives. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is uh, Dr. William Ruger. And uh, after this meeting that... uh, President Biden had with Xi of China, I thought we needed to talk to an expert. And he is the president of AIER. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about China. Dr. Ruger, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, what obviously we don't know exactly what happened in the meeting because it wasn't in public. But what are what is your sense of the meeting and um, where we are with China right now? Yeah, I mean, I I think the meeting was a good thing to open up those types of high-level communications because China and the U.S. relationship is really the most important foreign policy challenge uh, that the United States has uh, right now and is likely to have going forward. I mean, we we talk a lot about Russia and Ukraine, but actually U.S.-China relations are the most critical for our future, not only because China is our most important strategic adversary, But it's also an important economic partner of the United States. And so it's a much more complicated relationship than many other relationships right now. And also that kind of Cold War framework that many people like, it's really a a lot less appropriate given that relationship on the trade angle. You know, I'm certainly not a isolationist. I mean, I think that, um, but I'm not a globalist either. I don't think everything has to be made in China. And if the pandemic taught us anything, there ought to be a a minimum level of things that are produced here in the United States, or at least in our hemisphere, so that when we run into issues that it's we don't end up with parts in China, parts here, parts there. It might be cheaper to do it that way in the long run, but it's not the best for the society. Uh, I think a lot about how the price we have paid to have cheap goods in our stores and then let's take it to the other end of the spectrum i have an iphone i love my iphone okay i'd pay three or four hundred dollars more if i knew it was made here okay i would be willing to do that and i think we've established that people will pay a thousand dollars for a phone uh and i think that there are ways that we could be without being totally united states centric we could do more here and be safer, more secure, and have better negotiating ability with people like Xi. Yeah, I, I totally understand that view. And when it comes to truly strategic goods, right, when, when it comes to things that we need to make sure that our military stays strong and can defend us, 
clearly don't we don't want to be dependent on foreign suppliers particularly potential adversaries like china however it is really important to appreciate though that the level of trade between the united states and china and the united states and other parts of the of the world outside of the americas is so important to our economy that closing off that type of of trade would be very harmful to american consumers and while it's easy to say i think look you know people would like us would like would be able, willing to spend a little bit more the fact is is that uh, a lot of people uh that there's going to be real trade-offs i mean there's going to be trade-offs for us too but there's going to be trade-offs for a lot of people that are going to be much more severe so the question is is how do we get that balance right right how do we make sure that we're not becoming dependent on strategic goods making sure also that supply chains are robust uh but also making sure we don't kill the golden goose which is uh, an economy that's that's quite strong and resilient in the long run right we're having our problems now but it's strong and resilient in the long run because of the fact that we are a global trading country and again i'm i'm not a globalist either in the worst sense of that word but i do believe that free trade is good for america oh yeah uh, especially and I, when and i yeah, think we and I think we need to spend a lot more time on developing our own hemisphere. I mean, you look at what's going on at the border right now. Um, had there, if there was better jobs available throughout South America and Central America, uh, we might not be having that problem. But that's a discussion for another day. I've, I've been listening a lot to President Kennedy's inaugural address where he talks about, you know, strengthening the Western Hemisphere and 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 mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And I think it's worth looking at again. You know, um, I think it's right. one of those things. But I, what are the biggest problems with our China relationship and what should be we me? I don't want to say fear most concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to what you just said real quick. I mean, I was just in Guatemala last week, and I agree with you that there can be better ways to encourage trade between us and other parts of the Americas, and, and that, that would be beneficial for us and those parts of the world, especially because uh, if you're worried about things like immigration, um, if, you, if there are more opportunities for people uh, in places like Guatemala and other places, there will be less pressure for them to try to move uh, you know, north. Uh, again, on the on the China issue, our, our most important goal with China, uh, is, and it sounds simple, right? But it's but it's really important to understand this is to avoid what is called a hegemonic clash, right? To avoid a, a, a actual hot conflict between the United States and China, because if you think about how large and and wealthy China is, how large and wealthy the United States is, the fact that we're both nuclear powers. We're both naval powers, although the United States has a much more robust navy. Um, the fact is, is that would be incredibly destructive. And so we need to make sure that we meet our national interests, right? We don't need to be naive or, or give in to China when it comes to our national interests. But also, we don't need to be picking fights with China that could lead to a war that is not in our interests. And I think that's where we get into issues like, uh, you know, how we approach things like Taiwan. So I went to Taiwan in 2011 for the 100th anniversary of the Republic of China, and I was with a delegation from the American Conservative Union, and we got a 
pretty high level tour of the country and the things that they do. And I learned quite a lot. Um, I was kind of the middle class token on that delegation, but I was I learned a lot. They needed more women and they needed they needed more uh, diverse people there. So I got a chance to do it and I took it and it was great. Uh-huh. I learned a lot. Uh, but the relationship between Taiwan and China seemed to be a little better at that point in time. They touted the fact that they were trading with China, that that tourism had opened up and roughly a million Chinese a year were coming mostly to see the National Museum and that sort of thing. So it seemed like 10 years ago, there was 11 years ago now, there was a a better relationship between China and Taiwan. What happened? Because I know it's always been a tenuous relationship, but is there something that happened that led this on this led them on this more difficult course that they're on right now? Well, I, I guess one question is is what is the perception in Taiwan of the Taiwanese Chinese relationship versus the perception uh, here in the United States? Because again, it's a very complicated relationship in which it's not as if. You know, this is something like during the Cold War of the of the Soviet Union and and say West Germany. You know, where we had West Germany, East Germany challenges. Um, you know, Taiwan is it obviously has an, has economic interests uh, and cultural interests in in the relationship with China. Uh, it, the United States seems to be the one that is uh, you know kind of raising the alarm uh, even more than Taiwan in many ways. I mean, Taiwanese defense spending is middling. You would think that if there was this great hostile relationship in which uh, Taiwan felt that it was in imminent threat of being invaded, that their defense spending would account for that. But Taiwan is not spending what it needs to to make itself a kind of porcupine that the Chinese would be loath uh, to try to swallow. Uh, It's American defense officials that have been raising the alarm about this. So the question is, is who's getting it more accurate? I mean, one of the problems in Washington is that Washington is filled with people that inflate the threats, uh, whether it's because of the military-industrial complex or because of uh, the kind of globalist ideology you see. Uh, but they're always raising these alarms. Now, that doesn't mean they're not right sometimes. But the fact is that there is a disjointedness between American perception of the Chinese threat to Taiwan and what Taiwan is actually doing to try to defend itself. And Something's got to give there. Taiwan either needs to spend more money and do more for its own defense, uh, or the United States needs to reconcile itself to the fact that Taiwan is unwilling to do so. Has President Biden uh, muddied the waters? Because it does seem like he's all over the place talking about this issue. (laughs) Well, uh, you know, President Biden seems to be all over the place on a lot of issues, right? Um, You know, I I don't think that, uh, you know, that... uh, you know, he inspires a ton of confidence about, you know, where his foreign policy is headed. Um, that being said, I do think it was good that they were trying to open these communications, manage relations. Um, you know, when it comes to the Taiwan issue we just talked about, right, President Biden has gotten ahead of his own administration where they've had to walk back things that the president himself has said. And, and I, I think this is very dangerous. I, I don't think this is wise. Uh, because the Chinese are eventually going to start to believe the president instead of believing what the administration walks back. Yeah. And the United States has an interest in preserving um, the kind of what's called the strategic ambiguity over what the United States would, would do in the occasion of a Chinese attack or threat to Taiwan. 
Um, because, again, if we said that we were going to defend them and they thought we meant it, that could encourage the Chinese to move. Uh, and if obviously, if we said we were not, that could create challenges, particularly if Taiwan isn't, um, you know, already the porcupine that I think we would like it to be. We're talking to Dr. William Ruger from the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER, about China. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that about President Biden, because I said from the beginning before he was elected, you know, and this was when I thought he was going to be more what I called an Alka-Seltzer to the problems that we were having in our country. Uh, he's He's been a lot more progressive and a lot more um, hardline than I thought he was going to be. But I said from the beginning and observing him and following him, interviewing him, talking to him all throughout the years, uh, that I didn't worry so much about his domestic policy because we could fix whatever he messed up because I don't think he has the right domestic policy. I'm a conservative and I don't think he's doing the right things. But I was always worried about his foreign policy because he's kind of been on the wrong side of foreign policy ever since he, you know, got into the Senate. I mean, up to and including thinking we shouldn't go after Osama bin Laden. I mean, he just doesn't seem to have good instincts on foreign policy. And, and that's just observing him all of these years. Uh, so that's the thing I was most worried about. And honestly... When you when you add it all up between Taiwan and what's going on in Ukraine and the the botched uh, exit from Afghanistan, I mean the he that's where his biggest flaws have been. You can disagree with him on domestic policy, but the biggest mistakes he's made has been in foreign policy. Yeah, I mean clearly the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, was the right decision because it was essentially President Trump's decision. Yes, right? I Doha agree, agreement. but it was how he did it. Right. Right. It was the implementation that was a problem. And I, I believe that, the, you know, President Trump and the administration uh, under him would have handled that better. Now, I have obviously have a dog in that hunt because uh, I had been nominated by President Trump to be the ambassador there. So I I'm also I'm a bit uh, uh, biased. But I do think that if we had withdrawn earlier, it would have been a better outcome for us if we had well, stuck to Trump's timeline. Well, very minimum, right? in talking to military people, they say usually when you're going out of a place, you go out in the reverse order that you came in, okay? And so basically, just from a logistical standpoint, what you would have done is come out of Kabul first, and the last thing you would have come out of was Bagram Air Force Base because you could protect it, and, you could, and, and the only people that would be fighting their way out would have been the military, right? So... You know, just in talking to people that are logistics people that are currently serving but aren't going to speak against the commander in chief, you know, just doing that would have been a much more organized and reasonable way to do that. But that's, again, a discussion for another day. But will you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say just back to the China issue again. It's really critical we get this right. And yes, the thing is, is that China, China's rise to power means it is going to behave differently than it has before, no matter what we do, because of the nature of international politics, right? Stronger powers are going to assert themselves more. The key is that we have to make sure we defend our interests, but not go beyond them to expand into areas that really don't matter to regular Americans. And that's the danger of American foreign policies. We keep getting into these places in the world that really don't matter to us. And we need to avoid that and avoid the threat inflation that the, that the people in Washington, the establishment, continually does because of their ideas about the nature of the world and their interests. And that's not America. I mean, I have two teenager, teenage boys. Uh, I don't want them fighting uh, against China 
for something that isn't core to keeping us safe. And again, I think you could be realistic and think we need to have a strong national defense and stand up to China where we need to. But getting into a conflict that isn't of our making, that isn't you know something that is, is important to us, is something we need to avoid, uh, particularly given the stakes. Dr. William Ruger, AIER, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. We always get together with Bill Crane for Crane's Corner. And Lord knows, Bill, has this been a 24 hours or what? We got uh, new leadership under the Gold Dome. We've got the heartbeat bill. Some of it's kept. Some of it's gotten rid of. And there's more wrangling going on you got Raphael warnock's lawsuit about early voting you've got all the misinformation about why our early voting is the way it is governor kemp testifies and president trump announces he's running again it was a busy 24 hours and i think there goes the time of our segment but uh big big where you want to start and we'll jump through it so tell us first about the leadership that's really where your expertise is and then we'll get into all of it well, on the Senate side, we have a new lieutenant governor, so the new leadership in the state Senate did take a, a lean, harder right, and some of the more centrist members of the Senate leadership before uh, chose not to seek re-election. But in Steve Gooch, now the Senate Majority Leader, and the new Senate Leader Pro Tem, you've got some experienced legislators. They're, they're not putting newbies into the field, and they're not putting uh, major election deniers, if you will, So, uh, but they, they will be the more conservative chamber in the state house. John Burns of Newington, Georgia, who was the majority leader and has been on the leadership team in the House almost since he was elected back in 2012 or so, um, was elected speaker. They had a secret ballot. Barry Fleming, his opponent, um, did receive support. We don't know how much because they passed around a bucket and put in little slips of paper, and so they are not releasing what the vote totals were. But those who are inside the chamber do say it was a closer race, obviously, than than Speaker Ralston has had any of the times he's run for Speaker since 2012. But that's kind of expected, right? Yeah, yeah, and and yeah. you did see um, members of the former leadership team, Jan Jones and um, State Senator, uh, State House Representative um, Matt. I'm blanking on his last name from Gwinnett County, uh, elected to the majority post that was held by John Burns. So it's basically a team that much mirrors. The David Ralston team, with the exception of David Ralston moving into the general body and representing the 7th District as opposed to being in leadership. Now, Governor Kemp did testify in front of the Fulton County Grand Jury. Do you think that means we're going to see Lieutenant Governor-elect Burt Jones showing up there, too? I would advise him to. I mean, if he truly believes that by being one of the electors on the alternate slate that he violated no Georgia law, I think as a legislator and as the soon-to-be-seated lieutenant governor, it behooves him to get in front of that grand jury and say that. Um, we don't know what Senator Kemp spoke to for three hours, but what we understand was it mostly focused on contact from the Trump administration to him about the 2020 election results, calling a special session of the legislature. And although I know your listeners are probably more educated than most, I do want to underscore there's no charges or allegations or anything related to wrongdoing involved in Brian Kemp speaking to that grand jury for three hours yesterday. It's mostly looking backwards about contact from the Trump administration and the president himself with the governor and the governor's office in the days following the November 2020 general election. Now, 
in the following this same line, President Trump, former President Trump did announce that he's running for re-election. Not a big surprise. I think that just looking at that speech in a vacuum, he, it was a pretty good speech for him. And he talked mostly about his accomplishments and not any of the things he's angry about. Yeah, it was uh, less of a rehash than I was expecting of the 2020 election contest being stolen and much more about where he believes President Joe Biden has driven the nation into the ground. And his opening line of you know, the, the rehabilitation, America's coming back again, starts here today, was reminiscent of his first trip down the stairs to Let's Make America Great Again back in uh, 2016. So I think whoever helped him craft that speech was trying to hearken back and draw on some of those feelings and some of the surprise of the 2016 announcement. But it is very different now in 2022. And I think in addition to the fact that the Republicans have a deeper bench and some younger people in the field, Donald Trump is now 76. He'll be 77 in the heat of that campaign. Um, there's a growing number of voices, including the Wall Street Journals today, which is owned by the same folks that own the Fox News, that it's time to start looking past Donald Trump for the leadership of the Republican Party. So, um, just where are we right now? What's your take on where we are? I mean, because obviously Georgia did a lot better than some of the rest of the areas across the country. I would say, I wouldn't completely say that it's a dispelled myth that we're a purple state, but I don't think we're as purple as people thought we were. No, and it was sort of a status quo election. Um, Independents um, and some suburban women, not all, did break for Brian Kemp and down ticket most all the Republicans, Herschel Walker being something of an exception. And I think largely on economic issues, they sort of won the political center back, which is where the undecided voters always lie. Uh, hanging on to that will require an agenda. And I'm sure probably I'm alone in thinking this, but I think Judge Robert McBurney on Fulton County Superior Court, ju- uh, judge who keeps a pretty busy docket, he's overseeing that grand jury investigation we spoke about, he's preparing to preside over the retrial of Tex MacGyver. He's got a lot on his plate, but he he tossed out the uh, six-week ban, the heartbeat bill on abortion from 2019, say parts of it were unconstitutional yesterday. And I think the Georgia GOP might want to look at that as a gift, as an opportunity to go back in and recraft that statute, statute and even look at what uh, Senator Lindsey Graham proposed on the federal level to have a bill that, quite honestly, many of the legislators who voted in favor of it in 2019 actually didn't ever believe would become law. Well, and also, if you look at, not even looking at what Lindsey Graham did, but if you look at Dobbs, okay, Dobbs, which was the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, it was a pretty, uh, you know, it was from Mississippi, but it was a pretty moderate view. I mean, it was 15 weeks, it did have exceptions, And I think that whether you call yourself pro-life or you call yourself pro-choice, that generally if you get to the point in your pregnancy where you're showing and you feel a baby kicking, it's too late. So that a first trimester kind of gets us in line. You know, as a pro-life person, I would like more restrictions, but I, I live in the real world, okay? And I think this gets us more in line with what France and England and Germany and other, quote, developed countries do. And you have to look at what the voters said. There were five states that had reproductive rights, abortion rights questions on the ballot in different verbiage and in different frequency in terms of weeks, et cetera. But all five of them passed. So I don't know that every voter has a nuanced understanding of distinctions between the bill, but I believe most voters, a majority, 
believe there should be some right to a safe and legal abortion. And I agree with you that most think that should be in the first trimester. Well, and I think that also most people think that some restrictions are reasonable. You know, right. that that in, in, in these these Western European countries, they do the restrictions not because of morality, it's because of expense. The later you wait, the more expensive it is, and the more dangerous it is. So, for the mother as well as for the embryo. Now, my, uh, yes. my younger child has Down syndrome, and we uh, enjoyed our visit to Iceland, but they euthanize after a genetic test that determines a fetus has Down syndrome, every fetus that has Down syndrome, and, and it's mandated. So, wow. I mean, there are significant extremes in other parts of the world, and, and I don't think we need a national statute. Well, I and as, I agree. I mean, as a pro-life person, in the states where they passed what I would like or they rejected what I would like, that's where I think it should be in the states. Okay, it's it's the way many things are as far as health care is concerned. That you have, sta- I mean, heck, we have CON laws in Georgia. Most other states don't have that. I don't particularly like CON laws, but that's what we have governing health care, uh, or one of the things governing health care in Georgia. Um, so, you know, Speaker Ralston and I used to talk about that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a big fan of certificate of need either, but it is a way to structure. Can I touch on an issue wasn't in your list? Yes. There's a big push to standardize, and I'm amazed where it's coming from, federal ballots, like the same ballot, the same equipment, the same way we conduct elections, and everybody voting with paper ballots. I'll just say, having worked in elections and around them since the 80s, that's not only a recipe for fraud, but if you think Arizona's count weight was long that we just found out late this week about last week's results, we would be close to Christmas in a presidential election cycle if we're tabulating 200 million paper ballots. Well, on, I mean, honestly, President state. Trump, I don't know who's, know who's gotten his ear on that, but for him, that to be something he talks about shows a real lack of understanding for the Constitution, if you want to know the truth. Right. I mean, it's, again, only in our, your and I's political lifetimes have states trued up their state elections with the federal elections. It used to be municipal elections, state elections, and federal elections weren't even held the same day. And part of part of that was about controlling power and staying in power because the turnouts were lower. But uh, there's been movement over the decades to increase turnout, to reach out to more voters, to make it easier and more accessible to vote, and, you know, putting municipal elections all in the odd-numbered cycle years and putting municipal, state, and federal elections all on the same day in November and the runoffs. And, uh, and all of that has been about increasing participation. And I don't think the federal government proposals that I've seen are about designing an outcome. They're not about access. Well, and I think the most ridiculous thing of the week is the Raphael Warnock lawsuit about early voting, and then all the media people, including Jamie Dupree, who should know better, saying that somehow we're not doing early voting on the day after Thanksgiving because it's a Robert E. Lee commemoration day. You know, the reason why we don't do it is that most county offices and most government agencies give the day after Thanksgiving as a holiday. Yeah, the employees are not there. Yes. Particularly those with more seniority and experience, they take that Christmas week between Christmas and the New Year and the days after Thanksgiving, and they go to the beach or they go to spend time with their family or they go to Grandma's house. So they're physically not there to administer elections. Try to get volunteers to show up and work a precinct on the day after a major holiday. It's next to impossible, much less the people we pay minimum wage. So, yeah, it's all about staffing and 
if you look at the um, advanced voting of the last two cycles, presidential and gubernatorial, the Saturday and Sunday were not, are not the dynamos they used to be. Most of it is occurring Monday through Friday of the first week and then Friday of the last week. And we only have one week of early voting for the primary or for the general election runoff. So one last question. The day of voting on Tuesday, Election Day, was a lot was underwhelming. And, yeah, I was surprised uh, how low it was. It was less than just over um, under one and a half million. Do you think and I, do you think we suppressed the vote by everybody talking about how great Republicans were going to do? No, I think the negative ads beat some, beat it out of some people. And I'm talking on both sides. The, yeah. The, okay. The uh, just onslaught you couldn't. You know, if you are still old school cable or wired TV, you couldn't escape it. And even online, you could be, you know, on one of your favorite social media sites and the pop-up ads would follow you and God, the text and the emails. I think there was a percentage of people that just got over it. And who knows who would have shown up if there had been two and two and a half million. Many think that the Democrats would have done better in Georgia. I don't know about that. Looking at the county by county trends, the seven county core metro went hard for Rafael Warnock and Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams showing was particularly surprisingly poor. There were two other down-ticket Democrats who outpolled her below the office of governor. Um, but, you know, she won DeKalb County and Clayton County by 87 and 82 percent, respectively, Clayton being the highest. But both of those counties were had less voters than they had in 2018. Well, and DeKalb County doesn't surprise me. I mean, that's where she came from uh, originally, so they know we're the best there. But you know, she didn't campaign that hard. She didn't work that hard. She wasn't the same Stacey Abrams. And Governor Kemp had a exemplary record to run on. Whether you like Kemp or not, you saw in the way Democrats and independents voted for him that they were happy with the job he did. We've only tossed out one incumbent governor since we've had two-term governors back to George Busby in 1974. And that was Roy Barnes in 2002 when his changing the state flag, which I think was the right thing to do, angered a lot of people out state. And he took on the teacher unions. and That was um, the bigger thing. That tenure. was the bigger thing. And those those two things together yeah. swept in Sonny Perdue and Zaxby Chambliss and swept out he and Senator Max Cleland. Absolutely. Bill Crane, thanks for being with me today. Take care. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com. And you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.